I want to invite you, if you will, to Mark chapter 15. I want to hopefully begin there where we've left off over the last couple of months. We'll pick up there in Mark chapter 15. And if you don't have a Bible or if you don't have a smartphone or some sort of a device that will give you access to a Bible, we would love to put one in your hand. So if you do me a favor, and if you'd like one, just raise your hand and hold it there. One of our ushers will hand you a Bible. Um, this, this is also our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, take this. Um, and we, we, we want to even, if you know somebody who doesn't own a Bible, make this our gift to them. This is a, a big deal for us. We, we think that this is not just a moment where we sit down and kind of listen to some guy pretend to be the expert on the stage about the Bible and pontificate on his thoughts, but we really think that this is a corporate practice in which all of us sit under the authority of this word and begin to think about the good news that it shares with us about who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf. So as you're making your way to Mark chapter 15, on your way to Mark chapter 15, I want to maybe catch you up where we have been. For the first two-thirds of the gospel of Mark, Jesus has been teaching, preaching, and performing amazing miracles. And on the way to this point, Mark has given us with a kind of breathtaking speed an account of each of these different instances in which Jesus did something with disciples or with the public and with crowds. And so if you're kind of an ADHD person, you're kind of scatterbrained, you'll love Mark because he says the word immediately over 40 times. And before he even gives you a chance to like understand what he's saying, he's off telling the next story about Jesus. But the last five to six chapters of, of the Gospel of Mark change dramatically. And while the first few years of Jesus' ministry is covered over the course of about ten chapters, the last five to six chapters of the Gospel of Mark cover about one week. And Mark slows down and sets the pace very differently so that we would start to pay very close attention to the details that I would argue are climaxed in this chapter. And to some extent, all the time that we've been spending in the Gospel of Mark leads up to this very chapter. So I want to read it in its entirety. Chapter 14 left us off where the religious leaders of the day, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, scribes, and elders, and chief priests had run Jesus through a kind of a mock trial, gone out of their way to break some of their own rules so that they could hopefully sentence Jesus to death, and then they hand him over in verse 1 of chapter 15 to the Roman authorities, namely the Roman governor of that area, Pilate. Here we go, beginning in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he that is Jesus answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. 
But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, or Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one at his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Ilai, Ilai, lema sabdaktani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling out to Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered, a loud cry, and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome, 
When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. I want us to see, hopefully, the important details that Mark tells us about this important day, the day where Jesus died. And before we begin to walk through this passage, we see, we see this, there's Jesus before Pilate, there's Jesus accused and mocked, and there's Jesus taking the place of Barabbas, a murderer and insurrectionist, and then there's a crucifixion, and then there's the death of Jesus, and the chapter ends with the burial of Jesus. But I, I want you to set your sentiments and set your emotions where Mark means for them to be. You see, as the crucifixion in this chapter is narrated by Mark, in fact, the same way that it's probably seen, I think, throughout the entirety of the New Testament, he does so with incredible restraint and objectivity. That is, there seems to be no intention here to ex exploit like the gruesomeness and the savage, savagery of this crucifixion to either sensationalize Jesus' death or to simply kind of evoke a sentimentality in those who would read this. So notice, this is a brutal, the worst of ways that a person could die in this particular day and age. And yet Mark doesn't want us to think about the details and the gory, violent pictures that ought to normally be conjured up in a person's mind when they think about being nailed to a cross. Instead, Mark seems to accent in this crucifixion narrative the brutality, the cruelty, but more so the shame and the mockery that Jesus endured. So before we kind of dig into this, just I want to hear this, I want you to hear this, okay? Mark tells us a story, and when he describes the death of Jesus, he does something that I think defies typically our sensational kinds of sensibilities. Like we, I don't know if, I mean, you kind of get this, right? Like in our, in our day and age, like it's, it's really what it, what, what's expedient is almost exalted above what's more important. Uh, the things that are newsworthy aren't necessarily the most impactful, but they're the things that stir up the most emotion, right? And I want to warn you against that in the setting in which we find ourselves. Jesus does not want your sentimentality. And Mark makes very clear, Jesus does not want your pity. And Jesus, and the story of his crucifixion, isn't necessarily about the pain that he endured at each step of torture, beating, scourging, and nailing to a cross. In fact, Mark draws very little attention to that. And I want to do the same. I don't want to try to just stir up a sensational picture of violence and goriness. Because in fact, none of the Gospels do that. 
Mark wants us to see past. And this, what an amazing thing to think of, right? See past the gory and bloody and violent aspects of this story to the deeper and more significant events that are taking place. Now, this stands in contrast to what we typically think. Am I right? Um, go, go look at Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, that movie, right? What is that movie about? But to really draw attention to the gory and bloody and violent details of this day. But notice how very little attention Mark gives to those details. The details he seems to draw attention to aren't about the gory and violent nature of this day, but instead about the shame, the mockery, and the rejection that Jesus experiences. Up to the point where he cries out to God, and a man who presided over his death sees him as he truly is. So at the very beginning of this chapter, the priests and the Sanhedrin have passed over. They've handed over, literally, Jesus to these people. And, and there's an amazing thing that begins to take place. And Mark wants you to see on a regular basis the details that he mentions aren't necessarily to evoke pity or sentimentality, but they're meant to draw your attention to the Old Testament prophecies that are being fulfilled in this very chapter. And over and over and over again, Mark draws our attention here, not necessarily to the violence, but he draws our attention to the promises of God that are fulfilled in this chapter. As if to say, what happens here is for a reason. And the things that he tells us happen are for a specific purpose, to demonstrate something that is happening to him. So even the language you heard there, it handed over. The last time we heard this, Jesus predicted what was about to happen in chapter 10. And Jesus multiple times tells his followers exactly what's going to happen to him. But in chapter 10, we get the most graphic. And he says, the Son of Man will be handed over. And when he's delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, they will condemn him to death. And Jesus says in chapter 33 of Mark chapter 10, they then will deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. So Jesus predicts these things that happen, and Mark wants you to see, not necessarily the blood and gore that takes place in this chapter, he wants you to see that what takes place is exactly what the Bible had predicted God would do for his people, and exactly what Jesus set out to do so many chapters earlier. First thing we see here, there's, there's a fulfilled promise here. There's this, this in the midst of this terrible tragedy, instead of seeing the rejection and, and violence, Mark wants us to see the promises of God fulfilled. Just stop for a minute and think about that. Think about how crazy this story has to be to tell a tale about a man who's rejected, abandoned, betrayed, beaten, stripped naked, and killed in such a way that that's exactly what's supposed to happen. Imagine telling the worst possible story about the worst possible day and yet trying to communicate to people that that's actually exactly what God wanted and that the worst possible thing that could have happened is quite possibly the greatest thing that has ever happened. I mean, think about how Christians celebrate this. What a, what a paradox. We call this day and our current calendar as we tend to commemorate it, the worst day in the world, right? And we call it what? Good Friday. 
what on earth is good about this? A man betrayed, falsely accused, hung to die, and left for dead. And yet we say with powerful conviction, don't we? All things now because of God. All things work together. Even the worst of things work together for what? Good. Good for those of us that love Him and are called according to His purpose. His purpose, Mark saying to us, that's coming to pass in this particular passage. So the first picture we get, the first scene that Mark sets for us is the scene of a trial. And the first response we see that Mark draws attention to more than once, did you catch it? The silence of Jesus. The silence. Now the other three Gospels tell us the details of this trial in, in much greater, uh, like with much more specificity. There's much more, uh, there, there's more details that we find. Matthew records a dream of Pilate's wife. Uh, and even Pilate's hand-washing to kind of rid himself symbolically of the guilt of Jesus' death. Luke tells us about an interrogation that happened uh, before Antipas, another Roman leader. John includes this theological discussion between Jesus and Pilate. But Mark narrates the trial with much more economy, kind of tells us the important details, focusing first on Jesus' silence, but then telling us about Pilate's unsuccessful attempt to kind of like calm the crowd. So first, let's start with the silence. It says that Pilate, did you catch that word in verse 5? Pilate was amazed. There are two times that Pilate is amazed in this chapter. And both of them are based on something, not necessarily that Jesus said, but what Jesus didn't say or didn't do. The first time he's amazed, at Pilate, Pilate is amazed that Jesus is silent. The text, second time he's amazed is that Jesus is already dead. Pilate is amazed. I think we can read into the text here and realize that Pilate probably saw something, probably saw something that made him think what he says later, you really want me to kill this guy? Because I don't know if you've ever caught up with somebody who's guilty. Any, anybody good at like picking out who's guilty? Have you caught that like good at reading lies? Um, if you're really good at reading lies, I just want to confront you real fast. You're probably a really good liar. Uh, and that's why you're good at telling other people their lies, right? This is a gift. It's a good thing. Uh, but it's meant to be sanctified for, for God's glory. Okay, so, so Pilate, conceivably, probably a good liar himself, a powerful man, entrusted with a great deal of authority over these people who Rome occupied, had authority over this man. He probably presided over several different trials. And so when Jesus came in as an insurrectionist, the historians tell us that he's one of many. Several different times in the decades before and the decades after Jesus, there were several people who led rebellions fired up the Jewish people to fight against and overthrow the Roman occupation. People came and went. They died. People went home. The story was over. Something different starts here in this chapter. And Pilate begins to recognize it. And it says that he is amazed at the silence. you got to figure he sees something that evidently the other people didn't see or they saw and worked intentionally against. Like, have you ever seen, like, the guilty silence? Uh, you see this in children the most. Why'd you do that? I don't know why'd you hit your sister i don't know and it's like there's this kind of silence and and and, and that guilty silence is pretty convicting you know, like, can, can't you see have you, have you ever caught that like uh, hey why did you do that thing <laughs> i mean you see this this is the guilty silence but evidently this isn't what Pilate sees he sees like this confident silence you ever been there ever seen that kind of a confidence like i am not even going to dignify your words with a response in baseball terms, I'm not going to swing at your pitch in the dirt. You can throw this at me, 
but I am above it. And Pilate sees this kind of silence and is amazed. He's amazed. He's surprised, literally stunned by Jesus' silence. Almost thinking, come on, man. You know, you know if you just began to speak up, you, there's a good chance you could probably undermine these charges, but he's just silent. He remains silent. And Mark wants you to know why. Isaiah 53 Verse 7, the prophet Isaiah that Mark regularly loves to quote to tell us who Jesus is. Verse 7, the suffering servant that was to come to deliver God's people, it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so also he did not open his mouth. And Mark seems to be telling us that even in silence, he amazes Pilate, and even in silence, he is bearing witness that he is doing something greater. And even in the face of death, his silence is a picture of what he means to accomplish for us. The second thing that happens after the trial as we, we kind of get a window into apparently there's a custom, like, like, many, uh, like many political leaders, to kind of curry favor with the people that might not like them. They, they kind of offer tokens to appease them. And apparently on a regular basis, it seems like rulers would have like kind of set someone free. Uh, they, they would have pardoned someone, kind of to win people over, especially in a group of, uh, of people that probably didn't like them. And so he seems to make a suggestion, okay, typically I let people go free, um, wouldn't this guy be a great candidate, right? Isn't this Jesus guy? Because the evidence against him is kind of blurry, and he just seems to be confidently silent. Seems like killing this guy is probably not the best thing to do. How about I make him, to, pe- to appease the crowd, the guy that you set free? And the first thing that people do is they begin to rail against that. They shout, no, crucify him. And then instead of taking Jesus, see what they do, they would rather have Barabbas. They would rather have an insurrectionist and a murderer. Don't Don't miss this. Mark wants you to see quite clearly Jesus dies in the place of criminals. Literally, Jesus dies in the place of guilty, condemned, murderous criminals. That's not a metaphor. And Mark wants you to see that's not an allegory. That is not, a, that is not just a symbol. That is the literal truth. There was a man named Barabbas who was a murderer, who was condemned, who deserved death, who deserved to be hung ab- amongst the people like the worst of insurrectionists. And Jesus died in his place. Jesus died in his place. And as he traded place with Barabbas, the next thing we see that happens is a mockery is made of Jesus. It says that they took him away and then a great deal of soldiers, a number of people began to make fun of him. They began to harm him. They began to beat him. They strip him naked, throw on some purple stuff and kind of joke like he's a royal king of some sort. And they over and over and over again, did you hear that phrase repeated? The king of the Jews meant to be a mockery, like really king. As if to kind of challenge people into believing something that might stir up another riot with the Romans. They just kind of mock him. And the mockery begins with the soldiers. And it seems to end on the way to the cross when evidently a man is drawn into the mockery by carrying his cross. 
Maybe because he's too weak. Again, Mark doesn't tell us the gory details. But all we know is that Jesus is degraded and he's given a punishment that's actually befitted for a criminal in verse 22. He's taken to a a hill called the skull and he's hung between the company of thieves in verse 27. He's mocked and accused in verse 26 and the bystanders even begin to mock and make fun of him in verse 29 and 30. And the chief priests taunt him and even those who suffer his same fate begin to reproach and deride him. And the parade of the mockers shake their heads. Covered in blood and more so for Mark, covered in the ridicule of people, Jesus again starts to sound for us like Mark telling us of the suffering servant. In Isaiah chapter 50, it says it this way, I offered my back to those who beat me. I offered my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I hid not my face from mocking and from spitting. Do you hear Mark's story? It gets worse. This is where you would think he would say, and then it got worse, and then it got worse. But instead he's saying, no, this is exactly what happened. This is exactly what was predicted. They even tried to drug him with a a type of wine that probably would have numbed the pain or, or something of the like, but it says that Jesus didn't take it. Embracing the fullness of the weight of this pain until finally we get to the crucifixion beginning in verse 21. After he makes his way to the top of the hill, they hang him, nail him to a cross. Cicero puts it this way, that crucifixion is actually the most cruel and most horrifying punishment. It's specifically set aside for the most horrendous of criminals, for the people who have done the worst and the people who the Roman government wanted to make an example out of. To not just kill them, cut off their head and dispose of them, but to make an example of them, to hang them in front of everyone and say, look, this is what happens when you go against us. This is what happens when you stand up against the Romans. And what happens, Mark tells us, is amazing. It says he was hung on the cross at the third hour, but in the verse 33, it says at the sixth hour, sixth hour, this is confusing for us, this would have been equivalent for us midday, noon, 12 o'clock. For them, the idea of starting the day and ending the day at like 12 is kind of a new idea for us, but, but for them, it would have been, the beginning of the day would have been around 6, sunrise, okay? That's the first hour of the day. He was hung at about 9 in the morning, roughly at the third hour of the day. And by the time the sixth hour of day, midday, this is, this is when the sun should be the brightest. This is when you shouldn't need any help for light. What does it say came? Darkness. Over the whole land. Mark's wants, Mark wants us to remember that darkness throughout the entirety of the Bible is actually a picture of God's judgment. The same kind of darkness that came over Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 10 as he hardened his heart and began to destroy people in vengeance and deliver others in grace. Amos chapter 5 puts it this way, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is, in fact, darkness, not light. Is not the day of the Lord, in verse 20, Amos chapter 5, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not gloom? Is there no brightness in it? Amos chapter 8 puts it this way, the day of the Lord, on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Do you catch that? Mark, even, even in the darkest, literally darkest hour, Mark wants you to see God's doing something. 
In the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the rejection, in the midst of the betrayal, God's doing something. In the midst of this corruption, God is doing something. God's bringing about something. And the climax we come to, Jesus cries out in the midst of the darkness. It's interesting because the previous chapter, I don't know if you remember this, Jesus introduced himself, quoting Daniel chapter 7 and Psalm 110 to say that he's the son of man, which is an identity of a judge in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7 says the Son of Man will come back to judge. And so when Jesus says, I am the Son of Man, he's saying, I am the judge. So that we would see a radical paradox that the judge, Jesus, was judged in our place. And of all of the things he could have referenced, he references himself as the judge. All the way to the point where he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I don't want you to think that this is an idle thought because Mark, Mark wants us to see piece by piece that this is a fulfillment of Scripture. This is a fulfillment of God's will. This is not an aberrant kind of fact, but instead this is something that, that God means to happen. And so the first thing I want you to see as we kind of look at this, as Jesus cries out, Jesus cries out to God in intimacy and in covenant. And I think we can learn something, at least three different things from the way that Jesus cries out from the cross. And then I think we can learn something about the man who responded and said he's the son of God. So let's start there. He, he cries out in intimacy and covenant. So he starts with the word my. Now, now notice he, he, he says this in Aramaic. That's why the people around him didn't recognize that he was quoting a Hebrew psalm, namely Psalm 22. And if you want to, you can follow me there. Psalm 22, from the cross, Jesus begins to quote, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we see a picture of the ways in which he is quoting the Scripture and fulfilling it. Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. It says, I'm a worm, not a man. I'm scorned. and I'm despised by people. It says, I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. It says, my strength is dried up. It says, dogs encompass me. And a company of Evil do- doers encircles me, and they have pierced my hands and my feet. So see what Jesus does. He cries out to God. Here's what I want you to see from this. There's a difference between crying out against God and crying out to God. And Jesus sets an example for us that we would know we are, in fact, encouraged to cry out to God. We are called to cry out to God, but look how Jesus does it. He cries out to God in intimacy and covenant. He says, my God, my, in his own native tongue, Aramaic, quotes a Hebrew psalm, my God. This is the language of intimacy, is it not? Um, So I know this creeps some of you out if you hang around me, uh, but sometimes I refer to my wife Shelby as my Shelby, and I typically say it in a really silly tone of voice, right? In a kind of a, a childish, my Shelby, she's my Shelby. Right? And I know how uncomfortable that makes you feel. And that's meant to be the feeling here. It's the words of intimacy, is it not? It's also the words of covenant. My God is meant to draw our attention back, not just to Psalm 22, but where the psalmist in Psalm 22 would have gotten that. That God's first covenant was to redeem His people. And He says, I will be their God and they will be My people. And the language of intimacy and covenant is the language of mutual possession. This is beautiful for us. This is, this is why this possessive nature picks up in the language of marriage throughout the Bible. 
such that for us, Christians see marriage as a mutual feeling of possession, a mutual authority. Now, just stop for a minute. Realize that Jesus crying out in intimacy and in covenant really rails against what I think we typically see in relationship in our own world. I want you to see like, like this, this language of ownership and covenant and intimacy is really kind of freaks out the world. And we're becoming less and less tolerant and less and less like, I don't know, excited about the language of ownership. 1 Corinthians 7 uses this language and talks about how, how men and women who are married ought to relate to one another. And it says they shouldn't like stay away from one another. They should be together. They should be united intimately. And it says quite literally in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that the man's body is not his own in marriage. It's the possession of the woman. And the woman's body is not her own anymore. It's the possession of the husband. Right? I, I get, get how controversial that feels. Right? Get how that rails against your sense of identity. And see the picture of mutual submission, the mutual authority that God is demonstrating for us in Jesus Christ. He's, he's reliving and retelling the story of the covenant. Because the story of the covenant is to bind your identity to something other than yourself. Get that, folks. Just like grab onto that. Our current culture says that marriage is the perfect expression of identity. You get married to express who you are. Marriage in the Bible is the complete relinquishing of identity. The covenant relationship in marriage throughout the Bible is not an expression of my identity. It's a relinquishing of my identity for something else. The two literally shall become one. They're no longer separate. God makes something new. This is a big deal. This is, this is, this is deeply controversial. Like, we, we very much are like, I got married, so I, 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 I. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. The, the biblical picture of covenant intimacy is actually losing your identity in the covenant. God is no longer a God up there and out there. He is no longer a nebulous force that brings thing, uh, things about. He is Emmanuel. He is with us. Philippians says that Jesus, in the very power and authority of God, did not seem to think that equality with God was something to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself. And his ultimate expression was not of his own identity by his own sake, but his identity for the sake of his people. So that God is no longer up there and out there. He is with us, for us, and among us. And we as a people are no longer a wandering people. Is there a purpose? Is there meaning? We are now God's people. We are the possession of the Almighty. And in the same way that God is no longer like a violent or nebulous force, He is our God, our intimate Redeemer and Savior, so also we are no longer wandering people looking for identity. We find our identity in this covenant that God fulfills for us in Jesus. That's the language that Jesus uses. He cries out in intimacy and in covenant. So just stop for a minute and think about how that plays out. You're allowed to cry out to God. Here's the good news, okay? You find yourself being angry at God, being disappointed in the way things play out. Here's the cool thing. You don't hurt God's feelings when you express your disappointment. Like he's bigger than we typically are, right? He's like, ooh, no, that hurts me. That's not, ooh, that's not God. God, in fact, the thing I would argue that probably hurts the heart of God more is when we deny those things and we say something to God like, ah, you know, God, I'm okay. I don't really need any help today. And instead, it seems like in intimacy and covenant, we cry out to God and God responds. 
We find our identity. And so when we cry out, and I say when, not if, when we cry out, we are meant to cry out to God, not against him. Why is that important? Because I think the other thing we find out in the way that Jesus cries out is that Jesus cries out because of us. He used the language of intimacy and covenant, but he asks a question. Did you catch that? He asks a very powerful question. Why have you forsaken me? Without a doubt, this is a terrifying and complicated theological premise, but I want you to see the ways in which Mark is showing that Jesus is doing something on our behalf. So when Jesus asks why, and he wonders why he has been hung on a cross, Mark wants to hint for you and for me that the answer is us. When Jesus asks, why am I hanging here? The answer is meant to be you and me. And when Jesus cries out to God and says, God, why am I doing this? Mark wants you to hear this and wants it to rip through your own sense of self so that it gets to the deepest fiber of your soul and you go, me. I'm the reason he's up there. And when he asks why he is there, we ought to begin to raise our hands and say he is up there for me. Over and over and over again, the the Bible talks about how Jesus' work was not just something abstract, but it was something that is substitutionary in nature. And Mark wants you to get this, right? He, He doesn't want you to miss this. So the first story he told you, right, was about a man named Barabbas, whom Jesus took the place, right? A condemned criminal was about to die, and Jesus literally became the substitute and died in his place. Not figuratively. So that later, when he cries out, God, why have you forsaken me? We would begin to realize that Jesus is enduring something that we deserve. Throughout the New Testament, I should give you even just out of the book of Romans. Romans 4.25, it says that he was delivered over to death for our trespasses. So you go, why? Why? There's something for. Jesus died for something. And here's the answer. He was delivered over to death for our trespasses. And he was raised to life for our justification. Romans 5, 6 says that for at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Hear Barabbas, hear us. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners like Barabbas, Christ died for us. Romans 8, 32, it says that he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So how, he will, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? You get this? Ephesians 5, 2 says that we now walk in love, just as Christ loved and gave himself up for us as a fragrant sacrificial offering to God. Make no mistake about it, what Jesus endured was what we deserved. The Bible says it very succinctly, the substitutionary picture of Jesus taking our place, the paying the ransom that we owed, paying the, the debt that was ours that we could never repay. It says that he who knew no sin, he was perfect, the spotless son of God. He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I, we might become the righteousness of God. So the one who did not deserve anything awful endured that which was awful so that those of us who never did anything good would receive something good. He did it for us. And when Jesus is hanging in darkness and he asks, why is this happening? We are meant to say with confidence, 
for us. When he asks why, the answer is you. The answer is you. And there's this powerful paradox, is there not? It's your fault. It's not his sin, it's yours. It's not his guilt, it's yours. And there's this powerful thought here, isn't it? It's a paradox. On one hand, it says, why, God, is Jesus, the perfect spotless Son of God, hanging on the cross? And the answer, you. You. And yet out of the same breath, the answer to the same question, why is the perfect Son of God hanging on a cross, innocent as he is? And you know what the answer is? You. For you. Bearing the penalty and the pain and punishment that you deserve to offer the reward that you do not. And out of one side of our mouth, we're meant to say, it's my fault. I'm the reason that he's there. And out of the other side of our mouths, we're supposed to say with joy, he's there for me. He's there in my place. I think this speaks something profound to us. And I want to just, and I I don't know where this is, but I'm going to just kind of throw this out there and see where it hangs on you. Um, I think this especially speaks a word of good news for those of us in the room that maybe have contemplated thoughts of suicide. If you've ever been there, you've ever thought, this, there's no way out. The only way through this is out. If you've ever been there, you know what this is like. And there's this moment that overtakes you, and you're like, it can't get any worse. And you're thinking, there's only one way out of this. There's only one way to avoid this kind of enduring pain. And in that moment, you believe a lie. And in that moment, when you contemplate thoughts of suicide, you really believe the lie. In that moment, you think, I'm all alone. You think in that moment, I am forsaken by God. You think in that moment, how can I get out of this? Why am I here? There's no meaning or purpose. And there's a depth of darkness that we're meant to see that overcomes the earth at noon. And if you've ever been in that spot, I've been there. I've been there. And when you're in that spot, you're thinking, I'm all alone. I might as well be out of here. Can I speak a word of good news on the ways in which Jesus took your place? In that moment, when you were tempted to believe that you are all alone and forgotten and forsaken by God, you are believing a lie. Because, friend, Jesus died a forsaken and lonely death so that you would never be forsaken, so that you would never be alone. Jesus died for, for you, in the loneliest, most God-forsaken circumstance, so that you would know with confidence that you will never be forsaken by God. He died all alone, so that you will never be alone. He suffered in the forsakenness of God so that you would only experience the acceptance and grace of God. So friend, when that comes, when the time comes and you begin to think, man, why am I here? Is it worth going through? Is this so, can, I, can, I, can I just speak a word of good news to you? Give me the opportunity to say this in your ear. In that moment when you think this is all a wash, this is a waste of my time and I'm all alone, can I speak a word of good news? Jesus was alone so that you would never be. Don't believe the lie. Believe the good news. The only one forsaken by God was Jesus so that you and I would be accepted. 
He took our place. He hung on the cross. So that not only do we say, why did Jesus die? And point our finger in conviction and say, you. But we also say, why did Jesus die? And we get to say, for you. He endured and wore death so that you and I would experience life. Now, I think what this means is that Jesus makes the shepherd's psalm, Psalm 23, come true. It says that he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, the death shadow valley, right? It's a weird word to translate. He's in this valley where the shadow of death is creeping over, but it says that because of the good shepherd and the work that he's doing, he fears no evil. What an amazing thing to be in the valley of the shadow of death, but know that that valley, even though death is looming, is not evil. But it's actually something that possibly, this is miraculous to think about, might be good. So this doesn't mean that we'll never endure hardship. It just means that we ought not ever see it as evil. And we ought not ever see it as something that God has lost control of. See how radical the gospel calls us to be. We may be on the verge of death's shadow. We may be in the valley where death looms over us, and yet we don't see that death looming over us as evil, and we don't fear that it's evil. We instead see the good hand of God, knowing that no one has ever passed through the death's shadow but Jesus. And he has walked through it so that he would carry us through it ourselves. What a radical thing to believe. Where does a Christian get such an idea? We walk through the shadow of the valley of death, or the valley of the shadow of death, the death shadow looming over the valley. Where do we get that idea of fearing no evil? Mark chapter 15. We know that even the darkest of days, one day, this will blow your mind, people will celebrate as Good Friday. And finally, he dies, and a couple of things happen. I want to land on them. The two things that happen that are astonishing for us is that first, it says that the curtain is torn from top to bottom. The most significant event in the Gospel of Mark transpires. A temple rips from top to bottom, and then a Gentile centurion confesses Jesus as the Son of God. So let's start with the temple. Typically, we we knew a little bit about the structure of the temple as we walked through Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, walking up to the temple. There's an outer court where Gentiles and others who who maybe fear God could come and sacrifice before God. But there was an inner court in which those who are Jews, those who are religious people who were of the right lineage and of the right kinds of religious practice were allowed into this area. But then inside that was a, a place that was about 20 to 30 feet square, and it was called the Holy of Holies. And there was a veil that covered the outer court from the inner court and a veil that covered the inner court from the Holy of Holies. So that only once a year, the most holy day of the year, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the the day of a new year, the priest who had atoned for his sin would go into the Holy of Holies and offer up a sacrifice in the presence of God alone, the only person who was allowed to go in there, and he would go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice for the people. You weren't allowed to go in there. Only especially holy people were allowed to go through that veil. And the veil was the length of the entire temple. It was 40 feet tall. It was massive. And what happens, Mark tells us, when Jesus breathes his last? It says that that temple, the dividing marker between the presence of God, the unmitigated and perfect and holy presence of God, and the people outside in their sin was torn in two. But catch where it started. Did you get that? It was torn from the top to the bottom, so that you and I would know who did it. So that you and I wouldn't wonder who ripped this 
veil, who separated the expanse between our sin and God's goodness and holiness. The the temple curtain rips from the top to the bottom. Meant to picture that this veil between us and God was now ripped by him in the death of Jesus. The second thing that happens is the most powerful for us. It says that a centurion, the one who presided over his death, is the one who sees Jesus as he really is. We come to find out that only at the cross, only in the midst of Jesus' suffering, can we really see who Jesus really is. And a powerful truth endures. One that is not figurative, but one that is literally true for us, is that Jesus died so that even the people who killed him would see who he truly is. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark tells us that he wants to tell us a story about Jesus. And he says, this is the story, the good news, of the Messiah, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He tells us the Messiah, Christ, chosen one, the Son of God. Here's what's ironic. The only people that, well, not people, the only things that call Jesus the Son of God in the entirety of the gospel of Mark, do you know who they are? Demons. The demons are the only one who see Jesus as the Son of God. And what does he tell them? Hey, stop, be quiet about that. It's not time for that just yet. The rest of the people begin to accept him as a Messiah, but struggle to see him as the divine acting of God. I don't know if you caught this. Up to this point, no human being, not the disciples, not the Pharisees, not the religious elite, nobody, not a single human being saw Jesus for who he was. And you know who gets to see it first? The man who presided over his death. The man who executed him is the first one to see it. Man, don't miss this. Don't miss this incredibly good news. It's not the people who thought they had it figured out that ended up seeing Jesus for who he was. Jesus revealed himself and in this powerful and beautiful way in which he died and breathed his last. A man who was no stranger to death. A man who had presided over the death of many people got to see Jesus for who he really was. And this one death changed him. See the weight and the depth of what God has done here. He isn't just here in Jesus Christ to rubber stamp the religious affections we already have. He is here to demonstrate a greater grace that can only be realized when we find out that it's actually the people who are against him. The people that square off against him that Jesus takes great joy in revealing himself to first. The weight of death, the weight of sin that crushed him, the identity and his divinity was first seen by the enemy. So that, remember Romans I read to you? While we were still the enemy, Christ died for us. That's, that's the centurion. That's the man who killed him. I think we see two different things in the tearing of the curtain and we see in this confession of a Roman soldier, God is doing something and the weight of the wickedness and the weight of the sin in our own lives is is demonstrated for us. It is such an awful and terrible thing that God is willing to give his own son for it. And yet the weight of redemption for the person who sees God, even when he is working against him, is meant to be seen as a highly valuable thing. Jesus doesn't want your sentimentality. He doesn't want your pity. He wants you to see who he really is. That he's willing to go to the cross and die for you even if you hate him and even if you're working against him. 
Feel the weight of this. Feel the weight of the price that he's paid for us. Let me kind of finish up on this. This last week we got to see this. Uh, we get to see this, the care of God, um, in a really morose and, and graphic way, but it, it, I think it has some parallels. You see, uh, this last week a little bitty uh, robin, little baby robin, uh, wound up on our back porch, let's say. Um, I don't know what got him there or, or her there, whatever. Uh, baby robin, not, not, not that, it wasn't tiny, tiny, but it was, it was starting to get fluffy and it wasn't doing so well. It seemed to be missing some key ingredients that, that you need for life, right? And, and to make it worse, my daughter's named this thing Tweet Tweet, right? Like, and I'm going, yeah, that's, a, yeah, that's not going to, oh. You know, like, don't name it. I, mean, I, I know what's about to happen. And, and a powerful thing happens. Um, this thing, I think, I'm thinking maybe a cat's going to get it, whatever. I, mean, I don't mean to be gruesome, but I'm, it's not going to make it. Like, I can't, and if I, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm like, I'm not, you know, I'm not crocodile hunter here. I'm not going to, like, pick it up and make it all better, okay? And this, this thing is here, and I know it's going to die, and then sure enough, yesterday we would go back outside, and, and I, I, I should have known better. I should have gotten it and buried it, but I didn't know. I didn't know it was dead yet. Maybe I thought, oh, maybe it stumbled off. <laughs> no. There it is dead, and, and, and my little girls see it, and then they're just kind of overwhelmed with death. They're just, oh, oh my goodness, the finality of this thing. And, and I, was, ah, I was, my focus was drawn back to something powerful through the mouth of my daughter that I had said, because we'd seen this before. We've, we've killed some birds before. We've seen some dead birds. And I said, you know what Jesus tells us? Jesus tells us two times, Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 10, that every time you see a dead bird, you're to remember that every single bird that dies does so under the will of God. There's not a bird that dies outside of God's knowledge. He sees us and knows us. And I told my daughter, I said, you know what you're supposed to remember? Every time you see a dead bird, you're supposed to remember that we even are more valuable to God than birds, such that he knows the number of hairs on her head. So I'm looking at them like, I've got to bury this thing. And, and my, my daughter turns over to my other daughter and says, that's so we would remember that God loves us and knows how many hairs are on our head. And I, I mean, she preaches this sermon. I was kind of overwhelmed by this, like, by death here. And I'm like, this is awful. And then I realized something, that there is no suffering and there is no pain that does not happen outside of the will of God. There is no one who dies alone. Not, not even the little worthless bird. <laughs> Not even that little bird, tweet, tweet, God rest his soul, right? Like not, not even the bird dies alone. And we're meant to remember here that you are never alone. Jesus died the forsaken and lonely death so that we would know we are never alone. So that even the bird, this is interesting for us because this last week a lot of people got excited about a, a gorilla that died. Am I right? Pretty fired up about this gorilla. I don't, I don't have anything to say for or against gorillas, babies, and zoos. I don't have anything to say about that. Here's what I do know. Not even the gorilla dies alone. Not even a gorilla falls to the ground outside of the knowledge and love of God. And every time we see a dead bird, a dead skunk, a dead, whatever you see on the side of the road, you're meant to see it and remember that even that thing did not die alone because our perfect and loving Jesus died alone so that none of us ever would. Even that bird is inside the love and care of God. And friend, in the words of Jesus, how much more valuable are you than that bird? Such that Jesus would die in your place, alone and forsaken, so that you and I would know forever and ever the good news that we will never be forsaken, never be alone. Jesus doesn't want your pity. He wants you to see him like the soldier sees him. 
that he is the presence of God poured out for you and for me. And if you will come to him, let me give you the assurance of pardon. He will receive you. And in the same way that he will not ignore the bird, he will receive you. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are good, that you are merciful, that you do things for us we do not deserve. Uh, You give us gifts that we have never earned. Uh, God, would you help us to resist the temptation uh, to simply feel bad about your death and to feel awful about the pain that you must have endured? Would you instead begin to show us what Mark wants us to see, that there is something greater going on here, that you have died in our place, you have taken our spot, and you have endured the pain and wrath that we deserved so that we would endure and experience your mercy and your grace. We thank you so much that this picture of the death of Jesus isn't something that leaves us hanging in in despair and hopelessness, but instead this death of Jesus, this entire chapter is now referred to by us as Good Friday. And what was once the worst day in the world is now a good day because of your grace and your mercy. To the point that now what seems like terror and destruction and loneliness in our own lives is but a fleeting moment. And even though the pain may never go away, God, we know that the darkness does. For you who have endured that darkness so that we would only know your light. May we begin to respond to this. May we begin to believe this and be changed by this. May we begin to declare this victory over our lives because of your good news. In Jesus' name, amen.